um, some background here, as we've done in the past. It, it is that, that part of the Bible in Matthew's gospel where Jesus begins to address the crowd using uh, the method of teaching in parables. Now, uh, a parable was a story that was used to communicate. And do you remember why Jesus said that he taught in parables? I bet you do by now. I bet you're uh, really familiar with this. But let's go back and just for, for those who have, who have been in hiding, let's look at why Jesus used parables. 13, uh, Matthew 13, 10 through 12. It says this. Uh, then the disciples came and said to Jesus, why do you speak to them? He's talking about the crowd. Why do you speak to the crowd in parables? And Jesus answered them. He's talking to the disciples. He says, to you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, and he probably motions to the crowd and says, it has not been given. Um, for to the one who, who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But, what, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So one final time, we will emphasize this. Jesus spoke in parables so that some would understand and that some would not understand. That was very much the purpose. Uh, and understand what, you might ask, like what, what is he talking about? Jesus says, uh, his disciples, he's speaking to them, he says, for you it's been given to know, what? The secrets of the kingdom of heaven. So that's really what he's talking about in the parables. The secrets of the kingdom of heaven. And, and in, here in this section of Matthew 13, there are seven parables. And each of these parables, each one reveals a secret of the kingdom of heaven. And we've studied four of these parables already. We've studied the, the parable of the sower first. Then we had the parable of the, the wheat and the tares, or the wheat and the weeds, however you want to say that. And we, we had the, the parable of the mustard seed, and we had the parable of the leaven. And each one of these parables revealed a secret about the kingdom of heaven. And, and so you might ask, well, what kind of secrets have been revealed? Well, we learned in the parable of the sower that not everyone who hears the gospel will produce fruit. That was a secret that we learned. We learned in the parable of the wheat and tares that it's, that it's God's plan for people who, who trust in Jesus to live side by side with, with the, uh, the tares or those who do not believe in Jesus. Uh, we, we learned that Jesus has, has no plan to pour out his wrath until the great day of judgment. And on that day that all men will be gathered into the harvest. In the parable of the mustard seed, remember Jesus told his disciples uh, that while the kingdom of heaven might be as small as a mustard seed now, that the kingdom of heaven will one day grow into a giant tree and that all the nations would be blessed by it like birds that sit on its branches. And then we, the last one we had last week was the parable of the leaven. And we, we, heard, we learned this great idea that the, and I think we're going to see this continue on today, that the kingdom was hidden, Right? She was working with, with, with baking, and she had, you know, flour and leaven, and she hid that leaven in the flour. It was unseen, but it was persistent, the kingdom of heaven was, and the, and the kingdom of heaven was pervasive. And, and so, uh, so what will Jesus reveal to us about his kingdom in today's parable? That's what I want you to be asking. Uh, we'll tackle, we're going to tackle actually three, the three final parables of chapter 13 this morning. And, and here's what they are. I'll go over with them first. They're, they're the parable of the, the hidden treasure, the parable of the, the pearl of great value, and the parable of the net. And all three of these are wonderful parables. And as we read these parables together, I want, you to, I want you to ask yourself, what secrets of the kingdom are being revealed here? And so what I want to do is I want to stand and I want to read these together. Matthew 13, 44 through 52. I invite you to stand if you're able. 
And, uh, and let's have a word of prayer. Father God, God how great you are. Um, what a pleasure it is to have these stories of Christ Jesus, our Lord, revealed to us. Um, we pray that by the power of your spirit, we would hear them rightly, that your spirit would bring conviction and instruction and build up the church today. We pray this in Jesus' name, and the church said, amen. All right, we, we have a short reading today, 44 through 52. Let's read it. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. Church, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. And this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's, uh, let's begin with our first parable this morning. Verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and, and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he, he buys that field. In this parable, you have a man who, who discovers a treasure that's been hidden out in a field. Now, like, I, I don't know, maybe some of you own land. Maybe you've bought land in Mississippi. Has anyone ever found treasure buried in their field? It's probably a rare thing for us here in Mississippi. We don't, I, you know, I, I watch the news. I don't hear about this very often. But, but I want to suggest to you that this story would have not seemed as far-fetched for those in the ancient Near East. Like, it would have, it would have made more sense. And, and let me tell you why. The truth is, all that you have to do is look at the news this week, okay? Um, the Middle East has always been a war zone. You know this. Uh, we were reminded of that as, as Palestinian raiders crossed into Israel to slaughter innocent civilians. And I, you just have to know that if that land could talk, it would tell you just how many times that it had witnessed this kind of barbarianism over the centuries, Israel is, is, is the most highly fought over land in the world. So play out a scenario with me. Play this out in your mind. You are an upper middle class man living in the ancient Near East. You've got a little money in your pocket. And uh, you've got some gold and you've got some valuables. And once again, uh, back in that day, war is coming to your land. You are watching the news and they tell you that tomorrow is the day. Raiders will, will come over. So, so here's my question. Knowing that they're coming tomorrow, what do you do with that little bit of money in your pocket? What do you do with your gold bar and your treasures and your valuables, everything you've saved in your life? What do you do? 
There are no banks. There are no trustworthy institutions to just give them your treasure. There's no safety deposit boxes. So my suggestion is what you do is that you go out on the, the back half of your land, because this is my plan. I shouldn't have told y'all. <laughs> but I'm not going to bury it up front. I'm going to go back in the back where no one can see me dig a hole, right? And I'm going to hide my treasure. And, and let's just say that the barbarians come as they always do tomorrow, and, and my treasure's good and hidden, and, and I pick up a sword with the rest of my neighbors, and unfortunately, the barbarians strike me down, right? What happens to my treasure? It's buried in the ground. But you know what? No one knows it's there. No one knows it's there. And, and some months later, someone comes, and, and let's just say this was you, someone comes and they buy your land. And they have no idea that there's treasure back there on the back half. And they hire some guys to go back there and to plow the ground. And one of the guys working for them, who's, who's plowing the ground, hits something in the dirt. And he unearths it. And to his amazement, it's, it's a treasure. Now, in our parable, the guy who unearthed the treasure does not own the field. That's what you need to know, right? Because if he, if he was the owner of the field himself, there would be no need for him to go and sell everything he owned to buy it. He would, he would already own it. He would be happy. Look what's on my new land. This guy does not own this land. And, and what does he do uh, when, he, when he finds the treasure? I find this very interesting. Do you, do you remember what he did? He covers it back up, right? He puts the treasure back in the ground. He knows how valuable this treasure is. He knows that he wants it more than anything. And then he goes, and what does he do? He liquidates all of his assets. He sells all the stock that he owns. He sells all his gold bars. He's got a, he's got a little lot of land that he sells. He sells his car. He looks at his kids and says, sorry, we got to get rid of your bike. He, he cancels his vacation. He liquidates every last thing that he owns. This is the story, right? And he takes the money, and he goes and he, he doesn't buy the treasure. He buys the field so that he can legally and rightfully own the treasure. Now, uh, it was, it's funny, as I was, I was reading this and talking to some people, I was informed that there is possibly a moral dilemma in this parable, right? Are you aware? You hear it and you feel kind of a moral dilemma? Someone has asked, should this man have, have told the, the owner of the land that he's working for that he found a treasure on his land? Should he have told him that? Some want to say that the character in this story, the man who, who hides it back again, is somehow immoral. Um, I'll tell you what, if this man was immoral, I'll tell you what he really would have done. He would have simply taken the treasure when he found it. He would have just, oh, there's treasure. I'm going to take it. I'm going to go. He would have not have liquidated everything he owns. But, but the truth is here, and I just need you to follow this because it's a very interesting point. If you are chasing this rabbit trail with me, you're debating the ethics of a fictional man in a fictional story, Right? just doesn't make any sense, right? It, it, it's not the point. And I, I think if, if, that's, if that's where we're at with this guy's ethics, we are missing the force for the trees. What is the main point of this parable? It's very simple. What mysteries of the kingdom is Jesus revealing here? First of all, uh, in that parable of the leaven, remember the one we read last week of the leaven and the flour? Jesus told us what? That the kingdom was hidden. Like, like leaven and flour. You, you couldn't see it, but it was working in the background. Here, this is the very next parable. We pick up in this parable, and once again, the, the hidden kingdom is discovered. 
And, and when it is, when, when it's like that leaven that's hidden, but, but now this is a treasure on the ground still hidden, when, when, it's, when it's discovered, you, you don't hesitate to give everything, every bit of your life away in order to obtain that kingdom. You see that. Parable number two, the pearl of great value. Verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a, a merchant in search of fine pearls. So... Um, the idea is that there's, there's a merchant who deals in pearls and he's looking to buy pearls wholesale so that he can turn around and, and sell them retail, you know, probably to his clients. He's, he's a businessman. The way the ESV says it is he's a merchant. Now, now, what you need to know is that in the ancient Near East, the pearl was the most valuable gem that they had. And, you know, today in our world, that's probably the diamond. But back then in the ancient Near East, it was the pearl. It was a sign of of extravagance and wealth, right? If you remember uh, back in Matthew 7, Jesus is talking, Matthew 7, 6, he, he says this, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. The idea here is that, that pigs are the most awful thing to the Jews and in comparison, like really, well, this is a comparison of extremes, where, where pigs are the most awful things and pearls are the what? They're the most valuable or, or treasured things. Jesus was using a, a comparison of extremes there. Pearls are priceless. We don't give them to pigs. And so um, maybe a logical question to ask is, why are pearls so valuable? Well, let me suggest to you this, that, that, that pearls in the ancient Near East are, are very hard to find. They were very, very hard to find, and they were very dangerous to obtain. Uh, and you may be asking why. I think you know where pearls come from, right? They're, 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 they're found in oysters. And I think you also know where oysters are, right? They're in the ocean or the sea or the water. And, and how would you get those? Well, today we have all kinds of scuba gear, don't we? We have all kinds of breathing underwater. We have, we have vacuums at the bottom of the ocean. We have robot arms with lasers, Okay, I'm making that stuff up. But, but I know we got some stuff, right? We got some stuff to get oysters. And we, you know what the truth is? Today we probably just have like farms or we have like water tanks and we probably just grow like, and we probably have organic and synthetic oysters, you know? I mean, just, but not back, not back then, right? What did they have in Jesus' time? How did they get oysters? Well, they would paddle their boats out into deep water and a diver who did not have a snorkel or a tank or anything would tie a rope around himself, and then he would tie that rope to a big rock. And he would throw that rock into the water, and he would take a, a deep breath, and that rock would pull him down to the bottom of, of the water where he could sit on the floor and feel around in the muck as long as his breath would allow him until he found some oysters, and then uh, hopefully put them in his arms and get out of that rope in, before he died and come up to the top. But in our story today, this... This merchant, he finds a pearl of, of great value. Now, I just have to imagine this story as that he's not the one doing the diving, right? I imagine it, uh, a guy, uh, another man who, who's wearing lots of rings on his fingers in a back room, and he's got lots of goon security with him, and, and, and he brings in the merchant, and he says, I've got one you're going to love. And, 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 he, and he opens this ancient safe or a giant box, and he takes out this pearl, and it's wrapped in one of those you know, really soft cloths, and he holds it out. He shows it to the merchant, 
And immediately, that, that merchant's a pearl expert now, and he knows exactly how rare the pearl is. Verse 46, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. Now you see the, the similarity to the last parable. The merchant sells all that he has. He, he divests himself of every other pearl. He probably had a, a whole inventory of pearls that he had to sell. And, and, he, and, he, and every other field he owns. And my friends, this is how it is with the kingdom of heaven. There's some things you could learn here. Neither the pearl nor the treasure are out in the open. It, it's something you discover as if hidden in a field. And when you discover it, when you discover Christ and when you discover his kingdom, you realize Christ's value. And so I, what I want to do today before we move on to the next one is, is just to, to encourage you to ask yourself, what do you value most in this world? Your family? Your house? Your car? Your freedom? Your reputation? Would you liquidate all of that for the kingdom? And have you? Jesus says in, in Matthew 16, 25 through 26, this is what he says. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall I give a man, or what shall a man give in return for his soul? These, these parables, they're about the value of the kingdom of heaven and the fact that a wise man would be willing to give up everything. He would divest himself of every possession to obtain it. Why, I'll ask you this, why is the kingdom of heaven so valuable? I mean, that's the parable, right? Uh, the kingdom is a treasure in the field. It's a pearl of great value. But what makes the kingdom so valuable? Let me try and speak simply. Those who have discovered the kingdom of heaven... It's, it's another way of saying uh, those who know the lordship of Jesus and, and who have been given faith by his Holy Spirit to believe in Jesus and to walk in his way. That's what, that's what it means to discover the kingdom of heaven. Is it means to know the lordship of Jesus, to have been given faith by the Holy Spirit, to believe in Jesus and to walk in his way. What makes that so valuable to people? Well, let's look at one last parable and we'll try to figure that out, shall we? Verse 47. I love this. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and, and gathered fish of, of every kind. We've jumped into the world of fishing. Like, I, I guess I wish I wasn't as lazy. I think if I wasn't as lazy, I would fish more. You know, some of y'all are going like, that's what lazy men do? I don't know, but I just think I'd like to fish more. Uh, we've jumped in the world of fishing. This takes place in Capernaum. It's, it's, you know, Capernaum's right next to the Sea of Galilee. And everyone there who's listening to this, you know, on the shore, they're going to know something about fishing, right? And uh, I don't know if you paid attention to this before, but there's kind of, there's three methods of, of preach or of fishing that are kind of described by Jesus in the Bible and talked about. Uh, Jesus tells Peter in Matthew 17, if you remember this, he tells Jesus to, to cast a hook into the sea. And, and remember, he, he pulls out, I think, a, a fish and in it there's a coin and he's talking about giving to Caesar what Caesar's. But, but this idea of, of cash, casting a hook into the sea, you get that old-fashioned idea of fishing. It's the kind of fishing that I've done. It's where you have a, a hook and a line, and, 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 and you, you reel in your fish, or, or maybe you just pull it in. But you know, the second type of fishing that's described by Jesus in the Bible, we find in Matthew 4.18. Ready? Uh, it's what it says. 
Jesus walking, he says, while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. And they were casting a net into the sea, for they were fishery, or fishermen. So the imagery here is, is, um, is a big round net, and it had weights around the edges. Now, most of us probably call this uh, maybe a, a, a bait net. Do y'all remember those? And, and you have it over your shoulder, bring it out, it's got nets. And I'm not real good at this, but I've seen really good men. Like, I, I, I can do it kind of. But you spin it as you throw it, and it opens up into a big circle, and it lands on the surface of the water, and it's got weights on the sides. And so the hope is that you get a big circle, and it sinks to the bottom, and as those weights sink, it captures within it anything that, that it falls on top of. And then the fisherman then can stand back, and he can pull the rope, and it closes like a big hand around all these fish, right? Um, and, and, and that's kind of the idea here. And, and this is... This is the imagery that Jesus is talking about when he's telling Andrew and Peter that I'm going to make you fishers of men. This is the imagery there. He's, he's, you can imagine, that makes sense. It's like throwing your net out into the world to see what kind of men you might catch and bring them in for Jesus. That's, that's the imagery there. So you've got two kinds. You've got the, 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 the line on the hook. You've got the, the thrown net. However, this is not the kind of net that is imagined here in our story. So so let me tell you about uh, this kind of net. Uh, Jesus uses the Greek word here for a dragnet. Are you familiar with the dragnet? It's sort of a, a giant trolling net that could attach to a boat. And I mean, these nets could actually be really huge. They could be a, a quarter mile in length. They could be a half mile in length maybe. And this is how it works. This is really interesting. You would attach one end to the shoreline, Right? And the other end you'd attach to your boat. And at the top of the net, you would have floats that would keep the one side of the net afloat. And at the bottom of the net, you would have weights. And, and so uh, when you pulled the net tight between the boat and the shoreline, it formed this giant net wall. You begin to see this, right? It's up on the top floating, weighted at the bottom. It's pulled tight in between the boat and the shore. And, it, and if you, you left the shore and you pulled it tight... And you, and you started on the right-hand side, and you made this giant semicircle where you went, like, you know, counterclockwise, uh, like the hands of a clock. And, and eventually, you completed a circle landing back at the shore. You have, what you've done is you've effectively created an inescapable, invisible, vertical net wall that sweeps through the ocean, collecting every living thing. And th this is the kind of net that Jesus references in the Greek. The, he uses the word segin. It's a segin net. And, and verse uh, 48, this is what he says happens next. It says, uh, when it was full, men drew it ashore, and they sat down, and they sorted the good in containers, but threw away the bad. They, they, would, they would take that drag net they just filled up, be full of all kinds of sea life. Some of it was good for human consumption, and, and some of those fish were trash fish. They were not good for eating, and they were thrown out. And Jesus says, um, his kingdom is like this dragnet. You get this? We are all just kind of swimming around in life. We're unaware of the, the hidden work. We've been hearing that word a lot, the hidden work of the kingdom. There are good fish beside us. There are bad fish beside us, but it makes no difference because all of the fish will be caught up in the dragnet. And, and, and if you're thinking back to some other parables we've read, maybe this parable reminds you of the parable of the wheat and the tares. 
The wheat and the weeds are all in, in the field together, just as the fish are all in the ocean together, good fish, bad fish, until they're sorted. And, and that's really the, speaking of the great day of judgment, right? The same thing is described again by Jesus. This again is a parable warning about the inescapable judgment of God, the inescapable dragnet of the parable. And, and you might be saying to yourself, like, I'm, I'm not worried, Tyson, about being judged by your God because I'm an atheist. Or maybe you're not worried about being judged by God because you're an agnostic. Or maybe you're not worried about being judged by Jesus because you're a Jew or a Muslim or a Hindu and you're not a Christian. And, and you think, you can think what you want, but my friend, uh, the dragnet catches all fish. It sweeps through the water like an invisible wall. Most folks will gonna, are going to live their lives not even perceiving that the dragnet's there and it's moving closer and closer to the shore and it's pinning everyone in so that there is no escape. And sometimes I fear that, that, that people don't want to hear sermons on God's judgment. I, I, I do. And they might say to me, Tyson, wow, you've really been... Uh, fire and brimstone lately. And I would say, listen, I, I don't really set out uh, to say anything other than what the text says. I just, I, just, I really, and I, and I believe this, I, I want to get out of the way and let the text do its work. But make no mistake, Jesus is teaching again about judgment day. And, and I think the reason that he, he's, he's got a second parable about judgment is, is I, I think it's mercy. I think it's a warning of, an, of, of a day of an incoming doom, a, a great day of sorting, just as the, the wheat and the weeds are sorted, the fish are sorted here. And, and here's what I find also very, very interesting. Just as the angels were the one to sort in the field between the, the wheat and the weed, guess what? They are again the ones who sort here. Look at verses 49 through 50. You're going to see the angels sorting. So what will be at the end of the age? The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think that people who don't know the Bible like to suggest to other people who don't know the Bible that Jesus is all about love, peace, and acceptance. They will focus on the fact that Jesus eats with sinners, and yet they will ignore the fact that Jesus talks about hell more than anyone else in the entire Bible. So why is the kingdom of heaven so valuable? Why is the kingdom like a, a treasure in a field or a pearl of great value? I want to suggest to you that it's because those who have found the kingdom understand the mystery of salvation. Yeah, yeah it, it, it was a mystery for, for a long time. How God was going to save his people would have been a mystery to anyone in the Old Testament. It would have been a mystery to the prophets. We know God's going to save. We just don't understand how. You remember the Passover? Jesus told the Israelites to take the blood of the lamb and to put it on the, the doorpost to, to, to mark them as the people of God. Because, here's what's very interesting, there was going to be a great sorting that day in Egypt. And who did the sorting in Egypt? Well, the angel of death did the sorting. The work of angels is to sort, isn't it? But I want to suggest to you that that was just a, a foreshadowing 
of how God would mark his people. Remember the blood on the door marked them, about how God would mark his people for that great day of sorting. Those who belong to the kingdom of heaven are those who by grace through faith have trusted in Jesus as king. And and if you've done this, if by grace through faith you've trusted in Jesus as your king, if you've done this, you've been marked for the day of redemption. Let me show you what that marking looks like. Ephesians 1.13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the, the, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You, you, you were sealed with it. God's Holy Spirit is, is like, it's like a mark upon his people. The Spirit comes from the Father to, to indwell God's people, and he serves as, the Holy Spirit serves as a seal marking God's people for the day of redemption. Ephesians 4.30, this is how it says it again. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And, and here's what that looks like. The great day of harvest. We always, we've heard that that's, that's the judgment day, right? Uh, the day that the dragnet closes in on all of humanity and the angels do their sorting. Do you know how the angel knows who belongs to the Lord? They look for those who bear the seal of God. They look for those who are marked by his Holy Spirit, which is given to men so that they may know the word of truth and believe in Jesus. As you prepare to transition to the table today, because it's set before us, let's say just a few things about our text. First, be reminded that the, the kingdom of heaven is not obvious to all people. It's like hidden yeast. It's like hidden treasure. It's like a, a pearl that's yet to be brought up by the divers and sold to a merchant. It's like an almost unnoticeable net in the ocean which follows behind you sort of hidden until it hems you in. But those who discover it by the power of the Holy Spirit, those who hear the word of truth and believe upon the Son, those people will give up everything that they have to take possession of the kingdom. What a great thing to ponder. As you come to the table of God this morning, have you discovered, I'm going to ask you this, have you, have you discovered the mystery of the kingdom of heaven? Remember what that means. Have you, have you been called by the Spirit to trust in Jesus with your life? Do you believe that he is the Son of God? Were you filled with the Holy Spirit so that you were able to repent and believe in him? Here's a great question for the table. Have you given up everything that stands between you and obedience to Jesus. That's a great way to prepare for the table. What might the Spirit of God be calling you to give up this morning? Is is there a sin which you still secretly cling to? You found the kingdom and and you've liquidated yourself of everything else, but not that. Is there a lingering disobedience to the Lord that is in your life? Before you come to the table, this is a great time to deal with that. So I'm going to call you to take some time and examine your heart and to prepare to eat from the great table of the Lord. Let's, uh, let's have a moment of silence. Mm-hmm.